Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Molly here. Just a quick notice that Dr. Jen Unwin is holding a three-day, two-night, all-inclusive weekend retreat of learning, sharing, and support for anyone addicted to processed foods, sugar, or carbs. The event will take place March 3rd through 5th in Ambleside, England, and will include six months of monthly online support sessions. All proceeds go to the Public Health Collaboration. If you're interested, check the show notes for contact information. Today, Molly and Clarissa interview Mary Frances O'Connor. Mary Frances O'Connor, PhD, is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, where she conducts studies to better understand the grief process, both psychologically and physiologically. She is the leader in the field of prolonged grief, a condition in which people do not adjust to the acute feelings of grief and show increases in yearning, avoidance, and rumination. Her work primarily focuses on trying to tease out the mechanisms that cause this ongoing and severe reaction to loss. In particular, she is curious about the neurobiological, immune, and cardiovascular factors that vary between individual responses to grief. Dr. O'Connor's book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss, gives us a fascinating new window into one of the hallmark experiences of being human. O'Connor has devoted decades to researching the effects of grief on the brain, and in this book, she makes cutting-edge neuroscience accessible through her contagious enthusiasm and guides us through how we encode love and grief. With love, our neurons help us form attachments to others, but with loss, our brain must come to terms with where our loved ones went or how to imagine a future that encompasses their absence. Based on O'Connor's own trailblazing neuroimaging work, research in the field, and her real-life stories, The Grieving Brain does what the best popular science books do, combining storytelling, accessible science, and practical knowledge that will help us better understand and what happens when we grieve and how to navigate loss with more ease and grace. In today's episode, we find out how Mary Frances got into the field of bereavement science, why it's so hard and takes so long to understand that when someone dies, it's forever, why grief causes so many emotions, what happens to the brain during grief, how our understanding of grief has changed over time, why some people adapt better than others when someone passes away, what can we do when we're overwhelmed with grief, can our grief change, and our signature question. Welcome, Dr. O'Connor. Well, thank you so much, Mary Frances, for being here with us today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for several months now at this point. So let's just jump right in. Can you tell us how you got into the field of bereavement science? Like what made you want to study grief? You know, I'm, well, first off, I'm just delighted to be here, Molly. (laughs) I have had this just passionate curiosity about how on earth the brain understands that we've bonded with this loved, beloved person, this one and only, uh, how does the, how does that little, you know, massive gray matter up there encode that? And then how on earth does it understand or learn to understand that this person is gone after they die and, and what that means for our life. 
So that curiosity, I guess, has been paired with personal experience. So when I was in seventh grade, my mother was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And, you know, I didn't know this at the time, of course, because I was a kid, but she wasn't expected to survive the year. And so I knew that grief came to our house for sure miraculously, she lived another 13 years, but always with that sense of when is the second shoe going to drop? And I think because of that, it just, that, you know, day-to-day facing mortality and grief, it meant that I felt more comfortable maybe talking with people who were grieving than what, you know, most graduate students start out (laughs) being interested in doing in graduate school. And maybe because of the combination of the scientific interest and my personal interest enabled me to sort of really listen to what people were telling me, you know, through tears quite often, uh, and then match that up, match up their experience with these images I was getting from the fMRI scanner and, you know, blood tests I was drawing and such. So I think it's probably some combination of that. So why is it so hard for us to understand that when someone dies, they're gone forever? Like, why does it take so long? It's such a good question because I think many people have the experience of, you know, as as a, a colleague's wife described to me after he passed away, she said, you know, I know the reality, but it just feels like he's going to walk through the door again, like he's just on a trip. And that's actually a very common experience, even though I think it's not something we talk enough about so that people don't know that it's a, a normal experience. I think as I thought about why that might be, for me, I've really landed on the idea that our brain can actually use two entirely different streams of information at the same time. So on the one hand, you have a memory of the death, whether that's, you know, being with the person at their bedside when they died or getting that awful phone call in the middle of the night or being at a memorial or a funeral. So, you know, you have that memory system in the brain that says, I know the reality. But on the other hand, when we bond with someone, whether that's our spouse or our baby or even our best friend, part of that bonding is this belief that gets encoded in the brain, part of our attachment neurobiology that says, I will always be there for you and you will always be there for me. It's the the everlasting nature of our relationships. And that is super important when our living when our loved ones are alive, because it it motivates us, right, to all come back together again at the end of the day after work and school. And it makes us, you know, seek out that other person or wait for them. But you can see how these two pieces of information, you're always going to be there for me and you have died, they can't both possibly be true. But unfortunately, the brain can sort of work with both of them at the same time. And that means, I think, that it takes a very long time to reconcile the fact that they're no longer on this earthly plane. And then what on earth does that mean for my life? 
I'm just wondering how, like you just mentioned, you know, you get that sudden phone call versus maybe someone you've known that has been sick for a long time and how the grief differs. I mean, I just had a personal experience where, you know, I went in to get my dog checked out for something minor and they basically said she was going to live 24 hours. And that was shocking and devastating. And fortunately she's still here and I've Mm -hmm. kind of worked through it. And I feel like if she were to pass now, I would be in a much better place. And so can you just explain the differences with those griefs? Yeah. If, you know, if you think about part of what's difficult about understanding that a person has died is that the brain is a prediction machine, really, right? It's, it's sort of there to help us predict what might happen next and maybe prepare for it or, or at least cope with it. And we use the prediction, we come up with these predictions based on days and days and days. I mean, sometimes hundreds or thousands of days of experience. And so I think knowing that the person is going to die even though, of course, in an abstract sense, we're all going to die, but knowing that this is the illness that they won't recover from, for example, it does, to some degree, change the probabilities in our prediction machine, right? And so I think when the death is very sudden or very unexpected, it can be even harder, especially at the beginning, especially early on during grief. So we saw in the pandemic, some of the research I've been doing right now on pandemic grief suggests it isn't, it wasn't even so much whether the person died of COVID or not. It was whether they died unexpectedly, which of course was much was happening at much higher rates during COVID. And so I think that knowing that this unexpected nature of a death can be so profoundly affecting, maybe helps us to give ourselves a little more space, right? A little more, wow, my my brain is really trying to catch up with a lot here. Right. It's that, again, it's that idea of unexpected where it's like out of left field. And or even if, like you said, like people were going into the hospital with COVID in the beginning, I don't know that many people thought, oh, this is something we're going to die from, right? Like so many people are like, oh, it's just a really bad cold or it's like right. or whatever. Meanwhile, people die of the flu all the time. So why we thought this was benign, I don't know. But yeah, that does bring up a really good point where there's this ability to start to think about a future without somebody when they're, you know, maybe in palliative care or or whatever it might be versus all of a sudden, I, how am I even going to go on without this? Yeah. Right. Like I haven't had time to think about what that's like. And, and I think that the, in the beginning, like you said, I mean, I just experienced that with the loss of my dad at mm-hmm. the end of September where it was an unexpected and he lived alone, like Widowmaker yeah. heart attack thing. And so, you know, it's this idea of just like, I had literally just seen him a few days before. Right. So yeah. it's this really weird, like, in limbo, I can't imagine he's not like at like when I got to his house that he wasn't just like sitting in the chair waiting for me or whatever it might be mm-hmm. versus had he been in hospital or something along those lines, right? Kind of have this time to come to terms with it, so to speak. Okay. Although I will say that usually when the death actually happens, even if you've known it's coming for 13 years, right? It usually feels different than you're expecting it's going to feel. So I think there's that element to it. It can be unexpected 
even if the person was terminally ill in a weird sort of way. But you're right. It's still a different experience for sure. Right. And I, and I certainly don't want to take away from, from that experience either in that even when we know it's coming, we have more time to do some of these things, maybe, right? Like be more present, develop a relationship in a different way, whatever that might be. But it does, it brings up these there are still all kinds of feelings and emotions around it. And I really want to know, like, what have you found in your research? Like, why does grief cause so many emotions? Because it ranges from anger to relief to anywhere in between. And and how can we better manage them? Like, I'm looking for, you know, intervention, so to speak, maybe for clients that I work with. We work in the field of addiction. And certainly we know grief can send somebody right back into that cycle And so, yeah, so I'm just wondering like why so many emotions and what can we do? I think that thinking about the fact that there's always love before there's grief or or there's always a bond before there's grief can help to give some insight into this huge range of emotions. So first of all, I think every relationship is so completely different. You know, the way I love my partner is not at all related to how I love, you know, my dog or my, uh, you know, my mother or, right. And so some of it is certainly just the wide range of relationships that we have create such different feelings. What does that mean? What, what does that feel like if that person is no longer in your life? But the other thing I think is that the brain, you know, in its sort of, in its simplest moments, it really just feels like the person is just gone. Not so much that they've died, but that they're just not here. And I think for most of us, if you had a living loved one who wasn't here, you would either feel kind of angry about that. Like, well, where are you? You know, this, that's not, kind to just ghost me. Or on the other hand, we might feel really guilty. Like, gosh, what the heck did I do that made them leave me? You know? And although obviously those are not rational thoughts in the face of the fact that this person has died, it turns out the brain doesn't always find the need to be be rational. And so I think there's a lot of neurobiology, even at a subconscious level, that's sort of trying to motivate us to repair the relationship so that the person will come back. And, you know, while not possible, the intensity of that anger and the intensity of that guilt can be extraordinary. So what actually happens to our brain during grief and how would this make it maybe somebody who's in addiction recovery, how would it make their recovery more difficult? Well, I think one of the things that we know is that people experience, I should say, not all people, but some people experience a lot of emotional pain when they lose a loved one you know, they actually will describe it as pain, right? Which is, of course, a term that we use for physical sensations. But even from the neuroimaging, we know that physical pain also has a suffering component to it, right? So you can think of pain as being an incredibly intense sensation. And we've mapped out the sensation pathways, right? How does it get from your fingertips to your brain? And how does sensation work? But in addition to those sensation pathways, there are these other areas of the brain, insula and dorsal anterior cingulate, that are a part of that alarm, that suffering, that, you know, stop touching that, you're hurting me, (laughs) 
Well, it turns out that although not identical places in the brain, in, in close proximity are some of the same areas we see in grief. That dorsal ACC and that anterior cingulate is also activated when a person is looking at a photo of their deceased loved one. And we think that is probably related to this experience we're able to describe as being painful. So I think the one of the ways that relates to potentially then how we cope with pain is that a lot of us just try to shut off, don't we? We try to use something, anything to sort of mask that pain or, you know, take us out of it for a while. And that can come in the form of lots of things from working too hard to playing video games to potentially disordered eating, you know? So I think it often is around, often having difficulties in coping are related to really trying to avoid painful feelings. So you, your book, by the way, everybody, I mean, definitely read it. You, your writing is beautiful. It's so easy to follow. And this is not an easy topic to follow, right? Like I mean, brain <laughs> science is not an easy thing. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. And I promise you, I'm not an expert in that. But you know, something that I did pick up then from, from your book is, you know, I realized that we now can map out that physical pain and emotional pain are actually in similar regions, not right. So I have always said to my clients, you know, listen, we process pain in the one, we have one pain processing center and whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, the brain doesn't know the difference, but what I'm hearing is that it does know the difference. Ah, well, you, you, you've managed to step into a large debate that is happening in the neuroscience literature. So, you know, as a way to sort of not get into the weeds in that debate, which is not super necessary unless you're a total geek. <laughs> essentially, essentially what I'm saying is that the regions that are activating are, are sort of like houses next door to each other, but it's all the same neighborhood, right? So we don't necessarily know because we don't measure brain activity at the level of the neuron. We only measure it at the level of the neighborhood. So we don't know exactly if it's the same neurons or not, but we do know it's in the same general area. And so the brain divides up functions uh, into different regions. And so you're correct in telling them that it is the same region of the brain that's processing physical pain and emotional pain. Okay. Because I was like, oh my gosh, I've been telling people this all wrong. And it turns out there are these different... And, and like you said, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But I think from like um, the perspective of like oftentimes because we are trying to avoid that pain or we're trying to find our way through, right? We need simplicity. And, you know, in a lot of the work that we do, right? We talk a lot about feeling safe. Like we need to feel this level of safety and something like a loss, whether it be a relationship whether it be those food items that are setting off our brain, like, you know, lighting up our brain, like a Christmas tree or a loved one, you know, you make loss of a job, whatever. I think sometimes to just be able to have the neuroscience behind it or like the latest findings, right. It just kind of helps to take some of that fear out. It provides yeah. some level of safety. And so I just, I really appreciated that part that you really broke it down and said, like, listen, the brain, because I think you even said earlier, right? Like we can actually take in multiple streams of information and the brain can use that. And so thinking about that, you know, how does the brain decipher, like, this is grief, this isn't a broken arm? Ah, well, I, I would say you should go into neuroscience because this is an excellent question. 
<laughs> I don't think we have a, a really clear answer for that right now. I think certainly one of the things we know is that the brain devotes a lot of attention and real estate to processing people. So whether that's our self, whether that's a bonded loved one, whether that's just human beings, because human beings are so critical to our survival and not just any old human being, but our, you know, one and only is pretty darn important for our survival. The brain spends a lot of time processing the change in relationships, the encoding of relationships, the uh, emotions that are generated because of relationships. And so I think what many people have told me is that by knowing that there are changes going on in the brain as we're trying to learn that this person is gone and, and what that means for our life, because we know there are changes in the brain, there's this way in which knowing that for many people, it offers sort of legitimacy. Like this isn't in my mind. This is actually in my brain. <laughs> and although I don't think that's necessary, I mean, if you're feeling it, you're feeling it. Nonetheless, I think it is very reassuring for people. And from my perspective, I think that neuroscience can help us to disentangle when it can give us the comfort our brain really is trying to learn on our behalf, right? It's really trying to understand this new reality that we're living in. And that if we have enough support and are given time, that having these new experiences, though they may be painful, our brain is able to learn from them and to sort of begin to understand how to restore a life that feels meaningful. So your brain really is working on your behalf, even though because of studying the brain, we know there are sometimes some moments, some ways in which the brain can get in the way for a while, or even just is taking its time trying to, you know, churn this update in the background while you're busy trying to, you know, make a grocery list. <laughs> and you're not really able to focus on the grocery list because in the background, your brain is trying to figure out, you know, well, how do I how do I manage? I don't have to buy soy milk anymore because this person who is lactose intolerant isn't here, right? It's not just about making the grocery list. But I think that's the, I think I really, I mean, I made so many highlights in this book, you guys, because you speak to it about denial and how, I mean, the way that you described it and talked about it, I was like, how can we even show up and have this word denial? To me, denial would have to mean like I'm actively like saying, oh, that didn't happen. Where I think so often this word denial gets thrown around, whether it be like in the stages of grief that we all are still stuck on or in addiction recovery or, you know, whatever. And I think what I'm hearing you say, though, is it's not denial so much as this is the process of which your brain is learning and it hasn't fully learned that pattern yet. So it's not that I'm in denial that my loved one has passed away and I no longer need to buy the soy milk. It's that I haven't, that part of the brain or whatever, right? It still hasn't like come fully online. Like I'm going to continue to buy it. And then someday I'm going to be like, oh, I haven't bought that in a while, right? Like something's going to shift, but that's not because I was in denial and now I'm in acceptance. It's because of this pattern that has finally been learned. And then I may still like have snapback. I might still forget or buy it sometime and be like, why did I do that? That's, that's interesting. Or shoot, <laughs> yeah, something along those lines. And so, so I just really appreciated that, that ex explanation when it came to grief, because I can see how that applies to so much. I mean, just in recovery in general, whether it be mental health concern, whether it be like grief and loss, whatever it might be. And I, I just, 
yeah, obviously that spoke to me on a personal level. And I just really hope that clients of mine um, feel that too. So thinking about all of that, like how then has our understanding of grief, bereavement, how has that changed over time? Because I imagine in this day and age, it's worlds different than maybe even 20 years ago. It really has become an area that more and more research is being done in. Thank goodness. Uh, so, I mean, I think one of the reasons Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief really have stuck with us for so long, even though they were published in 1969, right? Think how far science has come since 1969. You know, honestly, is because she was a very brave woman. She was a psychiatrist at a time when there weren't a lot of women in psychiatry. But she also had this revolutionary idea that you could talk to people who were terminally ill or you could ask people who were grieving how they were feeling. And that was, you know, pretty revolutionary. And then she was willing to write about it for the general public. So On Death and Dying, her original book was published in 1969. And so she did what all good scientists do initially. She described, right? She logged observations of what people were telling her they were experiencing. And she wasn't wrong. People do experience depression. They do experience anger, but they also experience a lot of other things. They experience anxiety and yearning. And, and so her description of those five stages really in some ways is about describing grief and not necessarily grieving, right? So grief is sort of that wave in the moment, I'm feeling grief right now. But grieving is the way that changes, that grief changes over time. So we know now from much larger studies and studies where we have the same person come back multiple times, you know, weeks and months after the death of a loved one, we know now that they don't happen in these, you know, sort of boxes. It, it's not like you do all of denial and then you do all of anger. And you may not even experience anger, for example. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. We know that in general, over time, people experience more acceptance of the reality of the loss, and they usually experience a decrease in the yearning for that person. That doesn't mean it goes away entirely. It just means it's less frequent or less intense. Or even if it is intense, we learn ways to comfort ourselves in those moments. How do we go about coping with the fact that we are now a person who has grief? And I think, you know, the science has come a long way. That doesn't mean that we have the answers to everything, but it also doesn't mean, so you could say I'm an expert in grief, but you're an expert in you, right? So I may understand, you know, patterns in grieving or typical and atypical reactions. That doesn't mean I necessarily know how to apply that to your specific life. And so I think it's also important to remember that this information is most useful when a person, um, I describe it as sort of lending someone my glasses. Well, this is what I've seen. This is how I've seen it. And maybe that brings some things into focus you hadn't noticed before, but they're not your glasses, right? They're not necessarily going to work for you. So take the parts that work for you and leave the rest. Hey guys, just a quick announcement, and then we'll get right back to the interview. There is still time to join us for the no cost workshop in the month of February. 
Wednesdays, starting February 1st through the 22nd at 2 p.m. Eastern or 7 p.m. UK, Molly and Clarissa will host 90-minute sessions to process the Foundation's modules. Purchase the Foundation's course for $200 US today and have access to the course and replays of the five four-week sessions. Molly and Clarissa are also excited to let you know that Victoria Hama, chronic pain and wellness coach, is returning in February with three hypnotherapy sessions to go along with the Foundation modules. Her sessions will cover mindful eating, emotional eating, and self-compassion for $50 US. Contact Molly and Clarissa for details or check the show notes for all direct links. All right, back to the interview. So is there, just as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking like, why aren't there courses in like proactively preparing for grief? And like, we're all going to lose someone. And why are we not, you know, educating ourselves more? Like all the courses I took in school is about working with somebody who's lost someone, not preparing. And I mean, certainly Molly and I, when you talked about shifting from acceptance and the yearning decreases and learning to comfort themselves, that's what we teach our clients. And we tell them these things. And like, is there tools that people can, and use to proactively prepare for coming into a state of grief or courses. <laughs> I think that preparing for grief doesn't make you not feel it. So some of it is just this grief is the natural reaction to loss. And if you haven't taken away a loss, you haven't taken away the fact that you're going to have grief. Now, that doesn't mean I think there is somewhat better grief education than there used to be, although not at a level I wish there was. I teach a, a psychology course for undergraduates, the psychology of death and loss. And, you know, we talk about it for 15 weeks. There's plenty to talk about. <laughs> so I do think that those things help in the sense that it makes you feel more normal or you understand the why. Understanding the why doesn't mean you're not feeling it, right? So I've been doing grief research for more than a decade when my dad died. Didn't mean I didn't feel grief, but I certainly didn't feel like I was going crazy, <laughs> right? Because I knew, oh, this feels terrible. And that's how it feels. That's how other people feel too. So I think, you know, the education, even for our clinicians around grief has been very poor. I'm hopeful I see a kind of a, a critical mass, a changing in the way we're talking about this more frequently and more carefully and more, um, and to some degree, even more scientifically, right? Like actually doing studies to figure out what's common. And so I am quite hopeful that that will change the conversation over time. And while it won't take away anyone's grief, it may enable us to provide better support while they are still going through that updating process. It makes me think about, sorry, Clarissa, and then I'll let you pop in there. Um, it makes me think about, so I answered the suicide hotline for a long, long time in the area. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of clinicians in this, right, that right, they would be referring their clients to us and because they were, there was fear. There was a lot yes. of fear. They didn't know how to talk to somebody who was in, you know, that place, yes. all of that. And, but, and I was always like, that's like, I'm not afraid of that. Give me the phone call at three o'clock in the morning, whatever. Right. Like I was never afraid of that, but, but I never wanted to take the client who would, who had just lost a child yeah, or who had just, right. Like who was in the middle of that. I never wanted that because I didn't know, right. Like that was the scary thing to me. And I wonder if that's the same kind of mechanism yeah. where it's like, it's almost like you have to have some baptism by fire 
kind of experiences because we don't have the science yet. We need the, we need the anecdotal. We need the, what are we seeing clinically? And if we're not willing to immerse ourselves in that and get to know, get to see the patterns, like you said, like having this, because I say that to my clients all the time too, right? Like I'm an expert in mental health and addiction. Like I can tell you general patterns. I don't know your specific flavor. (laughs) We'll we'll work on that together, but we have to be willing to work on that together. Well, and you know, that's not exactly something that science solves, right? So when my graduate students come into my lab and they start interviewing grieving people and they've read, you know, all the articles and they know all the, we've talked about the theories and so forth. And then they come to me at some point and they're like, grieving people cry a lot. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, no, no, grieving people cry a lot. So, you know, there's still a difference between understanding, ah, this person in front of me is experiencing something normal and also, oh my God, it's really hard to sit with someone who is really suffering. Those are kind of different kinds of knowledge. And so hopefully, you know, one certainly, well, one definitely informs the other in both directions, but they are different skills, certainly. So why is it that some people can adapt better to losing someone? Like, is it certain characteristics? What's, what makes them more resilient? Or is there any like science behind why people do better? It's a good question. And, you know, part of it, I think I, I think one thing I sort of struggle with a little bit is there's a way in which we talk about grief, like you're going to get over it. And so, you know, if I said to you, why do some people do marriage better than others? Right? Like, well, that's sort of true, right? There are people who are probably better at marriage than others, but it's sort of a weird question, right? Like, is there a, you know, how high is high, you know, like, but that doesn't mean, or, or who, who does a good job leaving the nest, right? So I think bereavement is sort of like that. There's no end point. This is an event that has completely changed your understanding of the world and very likely changed your own sort of role in the world. Am I a parent? If I, if my child has died? how is a widow supposed to act differently from a married person, right? So I I sort of resist that sense of better, maybe. (laughs) But having said that, we know that there are things that as patterns across hundreds of people, we can see often make things worse. And so one of those things, as you mentioned, like unexpected loss, another is not having good support around you. Um, So social support, friends and family and community that sort of helps kind of bolster you while you're getting through, getting, getting adapted, getting to figure out what's going on. So social support is very important. But we also know there are probably other individual differences. So having experiences in childhood of separation and loss, having uh, anxious attachment. So the child who has, you know, significant separation anxiety in kindergarten may have a more highly tuned neurobiological system, you know, when it comes to loss and separation. And that can show up then later as well, even in adulthood. So I think there, we do know some things that are sort of risk factors at making it worse or uh, patterns that we can get into as we're trying to adapt that turn out not to be so helpful, like avoidance, right? And so I think learning those things is helpful, but it, yeah, you see what I'm saying. It's uh, it's hard to talk about sometimes to make sure you're uh, trying to be accurate. Yeah. And I think 
you know, part of my curiosity around like what makes somebody more or less resilient to it, right? As I was really thinking about it also from like a post-traumatic stress disorder perspective, right? We know that not everybody who experiences, not everybody who went to war, not everybody who experiences, you know, um, whatever, like a traumatic car accident or whatever develops post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was just curious if, you know, it was similar workings and do we like, is there something in the brain structure? Is there, or is it like you said, like those social, or is it a combination of both? Like, is it nature and nurture? And, and again, I suppose that's why, that's, that's why people research the stuff and put people in fMRI machines. Um, <laughs> because not because I think that like I can take it away for somebody or somehow I'm going to protect myself or my children against any of these things, but really because I think it takes away the shame yes. that is so often attached to these really big topics like grief. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And because, you know, so I think it is a, what I think of as a stress response syndrome, right? So in, in the same way that most people who experience a potentially traumatic event actually do end up adapting, but they're very likely to have that acute stress response. It's the same thing with grieving. The vast majority of us who lose a loved one, we don't ever completely lose the ability to function. It doesn't feel good and it takes some time and more attention than, than when we haven't lost someone. But for the most part, um, typically we are able to adapt when a loved one dies. But then much like with a potentially traumatic event, there is this small proportion of people who don't show change over time. You know, more than a year later, it's st they're still looking, they're still responding to the loss in the same way that they were right after the loss. And so then the question is sort of resilience is the normal kind of pattern. That's what usually happens. And in some ways, then I think we can ask kind of what gets in the way of that typical pattern for some people. And if we can identify those things, we may also be able to intervene and sort of work with some of the things that are getting in the way, so to speak, to get them back on that sort of more natural, typical healing trajectory. And do you have any sense of like what some of those like maybe generalized things might be that get in the way of somebody being able to, I guess, like move forward on the typical trajectory. So I guess like you've called it complicated grief in the book, or I guess there's some maybe debate about what to call it, but we'll call right. it complicated. <laughs> Is, yeah. So can you speak a bit to that? Yeah. We, the, the official term, we, we know for sure now, which while I was writing it, we didn't know for sure. So the official term is prolonged grief, although we historically called it complicated grief for a long time. Regardless, again, that's one of those weeds moments. We do know some complications that get in the way, even ones that we can intervene with in terms of clinical psychotherapy. And so even in sort of randomized clinical trials that have been done with uh, people who meet criteria for a diagnosis of prolonged grief. There are empirically supported interventions now, and those interventions include a number of skills and also that supportive therapeutic relationship. So one of the things that is sort of worked on in that, in that supportive environment is how do we identify things that you might be avoiding, 
right? What is the, the place you're avoiding or the conversation you're avoiding or the internal feeling that you're avoiding? And then can I support you to try and engage with that thing or person or conversation or feeling so that it doesn't hold so much power over you so that it may actually be easier to engage with it than all the avoidance that you're doing in the first place if provided some skills about how to cope with this seemingly unbearable pain. And the other thing that, you know, is is very commonly dealt with is some of the, the rumination that people experience when they're grieving. So this is, you know, those thoughts that just keep going round and round in your head. Sometimes uh, I've adopted this term from, from someone I know who calls them the would have, should have, could have thoughts, right? And the trouble with those thoughts, you know, if only I could have gotten them to the hospital sooner, or the doctor should have known to run that test, or if only they would have known not to take that last drink. The trouble with each of those stories that our brain is so good at playing out in a million different versions is that each of those ends in the in the eventuality, and then my loved one would have lived, but your loved one didn't live. Right. And so spending a lot of time in those thoughts is not actually helping you to adapt to your present reality. And so finding ways to interact with those thoughts, to manage those thoughts, to find other ways to cope with the feelings other than just sort of uh, getting into that same headspace can be another really productive part of psychotherapy. And you talked about some social supports as being critical for dealing with grief. What are some other like activities or tools that we can use for dealing with grief? Like what are some of the common things that you find help move people, whether it's through those stages or helps them transition to that place of acceptance? I think that, you know, when you're around someone who is grieving, it's challenging as we were just saying. I think part of what makes it hard for people is when you're grief adjacent, you think it's your job to cheer them up and that's not really your job. So support doesn't mean making them feel better. Support means recognizing what they're going through asking uh, what would be helpful, you know, what, what would feel most comforting to you and providing them, you know, sort of lending them your hope. I know that you can't see a time when you will feel like you have a meaningful life again, but I can see a time where that could be true. And I'm going to be here with you until you're there, right? So I think it's more about witnessing their experience than fixing their experience and just sort of being supportive. So I know <laughs> uh, after I got divorced, my closest friend at one point said to me, you know, you're doing really well in this impossible situation. And I have to say, it was the most comforting thing I heard because you're trying so hard, you know, you're trying to get the right shoes on the right feet to get out the door. And you feel like this is ridiculous that this is so hard. 
And so just to hear from someone, look, you're dealing with so much, you're really doing well, can feel very supportive. So basically doing all the things that we highly encourage our clients to do to begin with. But then if it's prolonged, it sounds like getting professional help. Because I think you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy specifically um, in the book. Is there like what, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, hey, I think I have this prolonged grief, what should they look for in a clinician in order to like start addressing that in the way that, you know, in your expert opinion is probably like the way to go? Uh, there's a fantastic prolonged grief center um, at Columbia University. If they Google just that prolonged grief center, Columbia University, they will find it. And it has an excellent set of resources, both for people who are grieving and also for professionals who might want to sort of improve their own knowledge about grief and, and intervention for grief. It also has a section of therapists that are trained in an empirically based treatment for prolonged grief. And those therapists are actually all over the world. I was going to say all over the country, but I'm pretty sure they're all over the world. And so I think, uh, you know, looking for those kinds of resources can be really, really useful to, but even if you have a, a therapist that you're maybe already working with that you already really like taking in some information to them saying, Hey, does this sound to you like what we've been talking about? And is there anything here that we should maybe be looking at together? That can also be quite useful. I think part of what's difficult is that avoidance is both very strong in people often who are grieving, but also is quite subconscious. So the advantage of having, you know, two heads are better than one. And so possibly a clinician is able to sort of look for the places, uh, the things that one might be avoiding and may have, you know, doing it together may be more fruitful even than doing it on one's own. If one feels like, gosh, I'm just not, things are not any different for me than they were you know, a year ago. No, I was just curious because I'm uh, obviously we hear a lot about these grief and loss uh, support groups where you go and other people are kind of in the similar circumstance. And I imagine I've never been to one, but I know I've worked with clients who have found that so therapeutic and just being able to speak to someone who sees them and understands their journey. And is that the same place they're at? And I know we certainly have that experience when we work with individuals with addiction where they, they can't really speak to anyone of their, these normal, right. Quote unquote people around them, but that, that person who is going through that same circumstance, you know, is, is they're able to talk openly about it and it feels maybe a little bit safer. Is that another good way that like will help change our grief? I think that bereavement support groups and, and, you know, empirical research suggests that support groups, especially those that are um, set for a time limited period. So, you know, this is a six week group designed for people who have lost a spouse, say, for example. So having it time limited and having the same people throughout the, um, the course. Empirically, we see that those are show some of the best impacts for those types of bereavement support. There is an advantage to even just getting to talk to people, right? Like you were saying, the sort of normalizing experience. And that's especially true, I think, in instances where 
the grief is stigmatized in some way. So when you have a loved one who's died by suicide or miscarriage, or for a young person who may not know anyone, right, who's lost a parent because they're only, you know, 17. Those are specifically, I think, examples where some psychoeducation and some normalizing, look, there's other people like me, uh, can go a long way. I think that it can become problematic when grief support groups are trying to facilitate for people who are in really different situations, not just in terms of the type of loss, for example, but when you have a group where some people might have clinical depression and other people might really be struggling with prolonged grief for for years, that's a very different set of problems to struggle with than, you know, it's been six weeks since my loved one died and I'm just overwhelmed. And so I don't think that they're the answer for some of our more unusual responses to a loss, but certainly in the normalizing, they can be incredibly helpful. That's so good to hear. So, you know, to kind of, I guess it's a very hopeful. It's very hopeful to hear that grief can change. Yes. Sometimes it just takes, you know, our own kind of processing. Sometimes it takes some intervention of some kind, whether it be with a professional or a peer support group, or maybe just a close group of people. Like I think about, I have two younger siblings that are like in the same boat with me and yep. we lean on each other a lot. And I think that's been really helpful. So whatever that is, you know, but I'm wondering if the research has shown, if you have any sense of how long the grieving process is and what is it that our brain is needing, you know, like, I guess, let me rephrase it. What is it that our brain is needing to learn from this love and loss and how long approximately on average, if you know, is that process? So it's a million dollar question, but unfortunately, I think the question is a little off. So it's like saying, you know, when did you get over your wedding day? You know, it's it's so wrapped up just in how we think grief works. But let me say it this way. We know that there will be change over time and that's grieving. But if I experience, you know, <laughs> when when in the grocery store, those, you know, Christmas cookies come in that my dad and I used to eat like by the box <laughs> every year that I see those cookies the first time I experience a wave of grief. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with my grieving. That doesn't mean I haven't adjusted. That doesn't mean I'm in denial. It means that in that moment, I'm really aware of my loss. And the natural response to being aware of your loss is grief. And so I think if people are expecting, ah, there will be a moment when I don't feel grief when I think of this person, you're really kind of setting yourself up for failure, right? So you can both be a person who has grief and also feel that you're living a really meaningful, important life that reflects the fact that you loved this person and they loved you. So I don't think it's so much about the how long. And I also think, you know, grief teaches each of us or that awareness of mortality teaches each of us something different, right? And it may teach us different things at different points in our life, right? So 
the person I was at 26 who lost their mom is a very different person than the person I am at 49 who lost her mom. And at 49, it turns out I'm still learning things about grief because mom isn't here now. That's different than how mom wasn't there when I was 26. And so does that mean my grieving is still going on? Well, yeah, on some level, I suppose that it does, but it doesn't mean there was anything wrong with the period between 26 and 49. I think it's so important that you normalize that. And ironically with like Christmas cookies too, because this is something that is actually very real for our clients when they're like, when am I going to stop seeing like cookies and missing them? And, you know, as somebody who's like recovered from alcohol, like I can still drive by a patio in the summer when people are there having drinks Mm -hmm. and, you know, like grieve that, that I can't have that relationship with alcohol ever again. And that, that there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm, I'm not going to relapse. It's not, it's not out of control. I need to go assess my recovery again, that it is just normal because we have had these close, intimate relationships with these people and these things, and they're not a part of our life anymore. So thank you so much for that. That was really, really powerful. Uh, Where can our listeners find you? Well, I am on social media, you know, the various platforms. Um, but my lab website is maryfrancisoconnor.org. And so people can learn more about me in the book there. So that's probably my, my recommendation. Awesome. And this episode will be airing for your, for the release of the soft cover, right? Yes. That's the, coming soon. The paperback comes out February 7th. All right. Soft cover. There we go. Back to, I lost back. the word. <laughs> yeah. Same idea. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Talk about grief brain. No, um, it's grief on the brain right now. Okay. So thank you, Mary Francis, so much for being here with us. And, and I know we've taken up almost an hour of your time, but before you go, we have a signature question for everybody. We like to kind of just you know, tweak it a little bit to make it more you know special to our guests. So I'm wondering if you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about grief or grieving or bereavement in general, what would it be? I think in a way, probably this will affect you differently than you think. And to really rely on your support systems because with them, all things are bearable, you know? Thank you so much. I love that answer. And thank you for being here today. It was really lovely. And thank you both for bringing this to people. It's such an important topic. So much so. Thank you for writing the book and for your contribution to all of this. Right. For sure. Because I agree. It, it is, it's something that, like I said, I've avoided for a really long time. Now it's in my face and I can't anymore. And I, I'm glad that you have done this and that we can provide a platform to help spread the message. So yeah. thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. 
As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>